are standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. <laughs> After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my go to my grave, testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? <laughs> Uh, well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> Who else could it be? Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Primetime with Sean Mooney. I hope all is well in your world, wherever on the globe you may be listening from. And whatever is happening, though, thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. We really Really appreciate it. Well, we're coming off another great episode this past week with Mike McGurk. And uh, man, she's a pretty incredible woman. Uh, She downplays it a a lot, but uh, talk about intestinal fortitude. I mean, she entered what was pretty much a completely sexist and male-dominated industry at the time. And she not only survived, but uh, she thrived and carved out her own place in that world. And still very respectful of the business, and I'm sure she could have told us much more about what she had to put up with, but um, what she did reveal was still pretty amazing. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, uh, check it out uh, with Mike McGurk, and I want to thank her for coming on. I'm glad we finally got her. Of course, we've got another great episode coming up here on PTSM. Now, this week's offering is, again, another conversation I really enjoyed with Rick Bogner. Now, right off. Uh, You may not have any idea who I'm talking about. Maybe you do. But how about if I say fake razor? Fake razor. Ah, now it's clicking, right? Now you know who I'm referring to. And what a time it was when fake razor stepped into the ring in the WWE. As always, folks, when I say you're going to enjoy an episode, I mean it. So let's get to it. Ding, ding, ding. Well, folks, joining me now is a professional wrestler who certainly paid his dues and had an impressive 10-year run in professional wrestling, or here and there. But for most fans, he is remembered for his time involved in an angle in the WWE uh, known as the character Fake Razor. Uh, Welcome, Rick Bogner. Rick, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I said ten years. I, I didn't. I, I probably should have checked it because a lot of times you're still working. And but is that a fair assessment or? That's that's four? about right. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, um, you you know, know, I like. Uh, I, I know people call me the fake razor, but I like the second razor. You know, I always thought of it as a Batman character, where Val Kilmer played it and George Clooney played it, and my favorite Christian Bale, of course. Yeah. Um, there, it was funny when Jim Ross announced this coming out because they said they're bigger, they're stronger, they're younger. And there was a lot of truth to that. I was a power lifter as well. I squatted about five plates a side, uh, benched about four and a half plates a side, and I uh, was also a shooter. I knew how to break every bone in the body from the neck to the shoulder to the wrist, elbows, 
going on all the way down to the, the knees and ankles. And um, uh, I heard Scott Hall do an interview and, and not knocking him or anything like that, but he said uh, he kind of knocked me and said I was too fat to get his trunks on. One of the girls had an old pair of his trunks. Well, no, my quads were so big and I was 285 pounds, I couldn't get them over my quads and my hamstrings. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you know, and of course our, our listeners want to hear the story. Uh, mm -hmm. about how it all happened, but you just mentioned, and as I said, that uh, you paid your dues, and I really wanted to give some background on you, because uh, uh, like you said, it wasn't like you just showed up, you weren't some jobber who, uh, you know, just put on a pair of trunks and went out there, and yeah. uh, and with that in mind, um, I know you, you're from Calgary, and mm -hmm. let's, start, let's start there, because, uh, you know, of course, everyone knows Stampede Wrestling and the Hart family. Were you influenced as a young kid? Uh, by Stampede Wrestling, were you around it? I mean, how did it all start for you? Well, I was in Vancouver originally, and I actually didn't start watching wrestling until I was a teenager, and I was already doing martial arts, so I uh, was near my black belt in a martial art called Saikido, which is mixed with judo uh, and karate. Mm -hmm. And um, I was watching it on TV. I was already about 6'5", and uh, in high school, and I was about 16, and I was... I thought, I can't sit in these little hard desks, and I don't know how businessmen sit in a little desk all day long. I'd lose it. I was too hyperactive. So I went and I, I just asked all around my friends and finally found a guy who um, had done some wrestling, and all-star wrestling was kind of popular out there for, for a while anyways. The studio audience was tiny. We went, uh, I, I found this friend of mine through another friend. His sister worked at a bank with this girl who was married to a guy who wrestled and his name was Daryl Murray. Mm -hmm. And so we went and watched all star a bit and why, you know, being a martial artist and doing point sparring, I knew what looked good and what didn't. And man, this was a perfect class act of what not to do. These guys were putting each other into the corners and throwing these really, you know, missed by three inches punch. And the other guy would spit back in the air. <laughs> yeah. Really hokey stuff. And, yeah. um, and then I started watching Stampede and WCW and WWF at the time and watched all these guys uh, like um, the Hart Foundation and the British Bulldogs and uh, Honky Tonk Man and even Flying Brian Pillman went to WCW at the time. And uh, I thought, geez, I got to move to Calgary. So um, 16, though, 16 years old. Oh, wow. And yeah, went and got in a boxing ring with Daryl and... He was like, first you got to learn how to take a bump. And I'm like, what's a bump? And he's explaining it to me. I said, oh, well, it's like a judo throw. So judo is on an angle, though. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah. So when you take a bump, of course, you go straight forward or straight back. And I had to kind of get used to that. But it wasn't a hard boxing ring. There was no, I think there was a little bit of padding in there, but it was hardwood, you know, yeah. the floor. And then he said, um, Okay, we'll get up in the bottom rope and take a bump from there. So I flipped over, landed on my back, got up. I said, okay. He goes, uh, try the second rope and, you know, take a bump from there. I flipped off the second rope, landed on my back, got up. I said, okay, what next? And he was, he was slowing down a bit. He goes, well, uh, go to the top rope and take a bump from there. I climbed up to the top rope, flipped over, took a bump, got up. I said, okay, what next? And he, he's looking at... Uh, his buddy with wide eyes, and I thought I'd done something wrong. You know, I was kind of a timid uh, kid, raised up very strictly European family. And and these guys are looking back and forth at each other. This is the first time I'd ever stepped into a ring. 
And I and uh, it's no, no, that's good. That, that's good. And after they taught me a headlock and an armbar and a lockup and a few other things, and and I realized later on that that was uh, you know very unusual to be able to take a bump off the top rope at about two hundred and about two forty at the time. Been yeah. lifting weights all my life. Yeah. Yeah. So you were already used to uh, hitting the ground pretty hard anyway. I, I don't imagine those judo mats as much. I, I remember that you know the wrestling mats were about maybe two inches thick. On yeah. cement, so that was probably you're probably used to that, um, but you know, uh, as you as you progressed here, and uh, yeah. you're saying you're 16 at the time when you started training. Is that yeah, so I got to be 18. I was going to a semester of college, and I I just couldn't take it. It was I won't get into the details of it, but I was taking psychology, history, and English literature, and English lit was the only one that seemed to make any sense to me of you know how to write stories and and um, some good stories from some good poets and writers, but the psychology was way off. I thought from what, what psychology truly was same with uh, history was more of the history of paintings we were going through. And I wanted to learn about what happened in real life, you know, and um, again, crammed into a little desk. So I saw all these guys going to stampede and, and going through there and making it big and, that was my dream I, at the time, uh, Macho Man and you know, Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan and all these guys were big, big stars. And I just envisioned myself being like that. So I moved out to Calgary. I, I uh, met Stu Hart. I just kind of BSed my way into backstage and got introduced to him. And um, then after a couple of weeks, I broke my ankle. So I went back, finished my semester of college, went to the gym on crutches kept working out my upper body and then healed up about uh, nine or 10 months later and came back out to Calgary. And, and uh, that's kind of how the, the start really happened. So when you broke your ankle, was it training or was it something yeah. else that wasn't related? Yeah, it was just training. And I was actually trying to flip off the top rope and land on my feet. I'd seen, I don't know if you remember the name Tom McGee, but. Oh, he was God, yes. Sure. Yeah. He's supposed yeah, to be the next Hulk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I, you just didn't have enough charisma, I think. I saw him live, and he just didn't really have it, I don't think. But he had everything else. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, he would flip backwards at 280 off the top rope and land on his feet. So I thought, well, I could do it. And then I broke my ankle doing it. And I realized that he was a gym in gymnastics before he ever did it. Well, I, I'd never done any gymnastics. so. Yeah, well, and it wasn't Stu who was stretching you that did it either. Which, uh, <laughs> no, fortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I, I think it showed that uh, you really wanted to do this because uh, you, you showed back up. And yeah. um, uh, so how did you continue your training at that point? And then when did you uh, actually start wrestling professionally? Well, I, uh, I came back out here and um, Stampede was just shutting down. And so a guy named Ed Langley was putting on shows uh, with Keith Hart. And it was it was good for me because in the stampede group, we, there were some tough older veterans. It was hard to get in. Uh, when you're only 18 years old, they don't treat you very well. And, um, and they were shooters at the time. I, I only knew martial arts. I knew a couple brain bone, uh, bone breaking moves at the time, but you know, uh, politically you don't want to go around snapping veteran veterans bones. Either. Yeah, no, not a good idea. No. So, and I remember you, Sean, very well. I got a, an email from Casey and, um, I recognized your name right away. And, and then I had to look you up and, and I remember when you came on the scene and I was like, Oh, that's pretty cool. I get to chat with him. 
Yeah. Well, uh, believe me, I'm, uh, I, I love having these conversations because I've kind of gotten back into this in the last few years. And uh-huh. it, it really is. It, to me, it's, a hi- it's history lessons uh, for me every time I, I sit behind this microphone. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's fascinating to me because there was a lot of things going on back then um, that I wasn't even aware of. And mm-hmm. that's why, you know, hearing your story and also, you know, telling people from your words, because it becomes a footnote, you know, like if you look at it and they say, oh, it was just this you know, thing that, that the WWE, WWF at the time came up with and it didn't work or whatever. But you don't yeah. know really what was behind it or, or about the person. And uh, to me, it was important to tell your story because, uh, like you said, you were a martial artist. Uh, you mm-hmm. certainly wasn't somebody that... Uh, you know, showed up at some wrestling school and got shown some moves and had the size for it. And yeah. uh, and doing more research on you and the time you spent in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with, uh, what is it, New Frontier Wrestling or it was front, uh, that Frontier was, Martial Arts. Yeah, yeah, Frontier Martial Arts, which was, I, I, I'm dying to know more about that because, you know, uh, if there's an organization in the world that, that uh, you know, I guess you could describe in many cases a shoot organization. I mean, they, they, even when, if it was a work, it was still a shoot in many ways because they had some very, uh, that's what crowds expected over there. And so uh, tell me more about that. I mean, as you, I I don't know how the transition happened. Uh, Maybe uh, that you got, you did start professional uh, wrestling professionally and then uh, got an opportunity. How did that happen that you ended up there? Well, I was out here in Calgary for a couple of years at this point. I was bouncing in the bars uh, and then maybe wrestling once or twice a month and, you know, getting a little disheartened about the whole thing. And then Ricky Fuji, a guy wrestled out here in Calgary as Tiger Mask. And uh, although nowhere near the athletic ability of the real Tiger Mask, he got over out here. And um, I used to work the back door at one of the bars down on what's called Electric Avenue, a very popular hot spot with about five or six different bars. So people would just go bar hopping and that. And I used to let him in the back door pass the lineup all the time. And it was funny because he would sing the ACDC and he had a, all the words wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd love to hear a recording of that. I bet that's <laughs> Oh, man, it was terrible. It was funny. <laughs> and um, because I had developed a bit of a relationship with him and chatted with him and he knew I was uh, training and doing a few shows here and there. And he was on his way back to Japan a guy he had stayed connected with um, sent a tape of mine out there. And it's funny because we're talking videotapes. And I remember doing a little research on you actually uh, before we chatted today. And you had uh, either somebody else had sent a videotape for you or you had sent it. And I laughed at videotape because, yeah, we don't even have those right. anymore, right? VCR, yeah, the VHS tapes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they liked me on, on the uh, videotape, and they brought me out. And Mike Awesome was out there. Horace Boulder, Hulk Hogan's nephew, was out there. Mm-hmm. I always thought that was pretty cool. I was wrestling with Hulk Hogan's nephew. And um, Mark Starr uh, from Florida. And, um, you know, Atsushi Onida was the, the main draw out there. And, you know, what, Japanese people in general are very timid, and, and they're very structured in their lives. And he was a guy who could just walk into a room and fill it with, you know, want want to talk about oozing machismo or, or charisma. He just had it, you know, and it was uh, it's quite amazing. So with this frontier martial arts wrestling, but tell me what that was about. I mean, did they do uh, real shoot type matches with martial arts involved? And uh, I think you were knowing what is big Titan. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is 91 we're talking, right? Around the yeah. early 90s. Yeah, July of 91. So I finally got my chance out there. And in my mind, I'd made it. I'd finally gotten to uh, about two or three weeks on, two weeks off, flying back and forth. I actually didn't want to be away from home that much. But the other guys, like Mike Awesome, said to me, well, you made it, man. I mean, be happy you're getting this much work. It's hard to get. And, you know, I found out later on he was correct. Um, but uh, I liked being home a little bit more than that. But, you know, it's just the business. And um, I, I got a little bigger, a little stronger, started working out with a powerlifter friend of mine. So learned how to eat bigger and, and about eight times a day till you're almost throwing up. You know, you're still full. And he always pushed me in the gym. So I got bigger and bigger and could still throw a good flying side kick to the head to 285 or a spin kick to the chin and just tap them on the chin and the crowd would pop pretty big. And, um, we're doing, uh, a lot of street fight matches. So we, you know, be running outside or jumping over the top rope onto a guy on a table and he'd move and he'd smash through it or, you know, steel chair kind of folding, almost like a dueling sword smash, smash thing with these chairs. And, pop somebody over the head or you get popped over the head with a chair and uh, uh, no rope barbed wire matches. It was pretty crazy. And a um, couple of the guys out there and I'd watch video tapes of it before I went over there. I thought, wow, this is pretty crazy looking stuff. I don't really know if I actually want to get involved in this. <laughs> One of the guys was Gregory Verichev and he was um, Olympic judo medalist in uh, well, judo. And, uh, man, he would just throw you around and ragdoll you, and you had no choice. <laughs> You'd just try to work with him as nicely as you could, but he's one guy I wouldn't screw with because he, he could throw you right through a wall just standing there in a split second. And uh, another guy named Katsuji Ueda, um, Japanese kickboxer guy, he laid it in pretty stiff, but, you know, when I got a hold of him, I, I just belly-to-belly -belly shoot suplex him and, and stuff like that too if he was starting to kick a little too hard or get a little too confident in there and, um, you know, block some of his kicks and throw a few back and, and muscle in, I, you know, I was also bouncing. So not to sound bragging or anything, but I bounced for 10 years. And fortunately I never lost a fight. And sometimes I drag two guys out at a time in a chokehold. Right. So Boy. And not these days anymore, though. But uh, no. back then, yeah, <laughs> different life now. Yeah, but, uh, you talk about these matches, and um, you know they talk. They, it's legendary how they would lay it in there, and the promoters yeah. expected you to do that, and the crowds were very uh, accustomed to that. But yeah. what kind of a toll did that take on your body when you do this? And I don't know how many nights a week you were working, but yeah. uh, you know that's one of the one of the uh, things in professional wrestling is the guys take care of each other because you got to keep working. And if he's not going to be there in the ring with you the next night, your match is blown. So yeah. how did you, uh, you know, how, what kind of a toll did that take on your body and, and how did you do it? Well, it was a stiff work. And I think in your early twenties, you're pretty resilient. And, um, you, you sometimes say, end up waking up the next morning stiff and sore, but you're not too, too bad. You know, as the day wears on, you feel better. Um, we, we were kind of typical wrestlers, especially out there. We drank beer every night, so that would yeah. ease the pain a bit. Um, but, yeah, at, at that age and with the, uh, you know, the aggression and, and added 
chemicals for size as well. You, you just, <laughs> you kind of just motor through it and you get super psyched up before you go out there and almost to a crazed state, which I, I teach some people. And uh, what I got is a fire it up seminar. And I teach them how to go to a pond meditation, I call it, where it's a space of peace and calm. And then how to get psyched up and I make them stand up with their eyes closed and jog on the spot and then visualize where they want to get to and then scream out yes at the very end of it. So they learn how to take themselves from a, a regular state or even, you know, I think most people are a little bit on edge these days. So even an edgy state to a very peaceful, calm, serene state. So they have that mental control and they can start implanting that upon their subconscious mind. And then um, to get psyched up and motivated for something, you know, a lot of people are either lazy or they just can't find the motivation or um, they've been doing it for so long that they had, they're having a hard time getting jacked for things anymore. So give them that little gift at the end of the seminar where they can end an audio to go along with it so that they can get psyched up for whatever they need to. Of course, you wouldn't have to get as psyched up as extremely as you would to get in the ring because of all the pain and the strength you'd have to have. But to go ahead and do something in life that you're not really looking forward to or you can't get psyched up for anymore or motivated for, it's a very useful tool. Yeah. And, and so uh, did you start to catch on there? Uh, you're saying you're going back and forth every two weeks, but uh, if they like you, they like you to stick around. And yeah. did it really turn into something? Were you spending more time over there? And, and this stretch, uh, before you arrived at the WWF, um, was that what you're doing pretty much? And, to, and, and how far did your career go? Yeah. Uh, from the point of 91 till about 94, I was there almost two weeks on, two weeks off. And then I was wrestling out here for Canadian Rocky Mountain Wrestling, uh, became the world heavyweight champion there. Uh, that was televised as well out here locally. And um, again, it was... Uh, uh, fact of I was about 285 again pretty lean I wouldn't say shredded ripped or anything but I was big and lean and uh, there's not not many of the guys out here could touch me but at the same time all they had to do was go to the gym work out really really hard and most of them for whatever reason didn't have that quite instilled in them there were a couple of guys that were really big really muscular but they were kind of clumsy and they didn't work on their skills in the ring as much as they could have or they were so pan-faced, they had no charisma, and uh, it was like they were staring dead at the mat the whole time, so they couldn't really get over. Um, and I'd always been a ham ever since I was a kid. I think I was disco dancing at seven in front of our families and break dancing <laughs> at 16 when that was in, and then uh, got into wrestling after that. So I knew how to, to do the facials and, and things like that, you know? So how did the uh, the co connection between uh, you and the WWE first get established, and then how did it progress? Well, uh, had a run in Japan, very short one, as the world heavyweight champion out there. And this is I uh, was friends with Chris Jericho and Lance Storm, and they had sent their tapes out to WWE or WWF at the time. Yeah. And I, I hadn't. I didn't feel like I was ready. But really, I was ready on the outside, just not on the inside. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to be really polished and experienced and professional before I went in there. But it, it would have been better off if they had had some exposure to me, I think, leading up to me going there, uh, looking back upon it. But um, 
then I got a chance to go to Austria and Germany. So I went out there in 94 and wrestled uh, Luke Poyer, who was wrestling as Rambo out there. We had some great matches. Um, then 95, I ended up going out to Austria and Germany, living out there for six months. And that was a, a really good experience because I really learned what in the U.S., would need as a, a really good heel or a really good baby face and sort of the psychology of a match there because in Canada I was a baby face and I was really over but it was more of a semi-ultimate warrior Lex Luger kind of a thing where mm -hmm. I'd just go in there and beat the crap out of guys and get you know pin them and that was it there wasn't any long matches or any great psychology and then in Japan it was just go 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 high spot high spot you know, not totally different psychology and then a bunch of false finishes and then finally the, the finish. And um, so in Germany, I learned, uh, you know, a lot of how to carry that crowd along, work, work well as a heel. And they had a round system. So uh, we'd do rounds and I got taught, you know, to sneak up on the baby face between rounds as he had his back turned, you know, on purpose, of course. And then the referee would stop me, or sometimes I get a shot in, and, and um, yeah, I really learned the, the art of being a sneaky, as Dave Finley would say, a shit house rat. Yeah. Well, and that—that's where the psychology came in. Uh, you know, that uh, early education that you almost uh, <laughs> started and completed, maybe. But, yeah. Uh, but it, but it, it, that is a big part of it, and. You know, before you get to the WWF, though, you did you have you know, they expect you to be able to cut promos. And yeah. when did you have an opportunity to have any experience doing that? Were some of these outfits a little more, um, you know, uh, had that as part of their arsenal or part of what they, they had you do? Or how did you how did you develop that? Well, I knew in Japan that I eventually wanted to go to the States. And after a few years out there, um, Again, being about six foot six, I mean, the doorways, I'd be knocking my head on doorways. The showers weren't tall <laughs> enough. You couldn't stand up straight. You got a sore neck in the morning. The bed, my feet were hanging off the beds. You know, it's just uh, one plate of food to them. I needed two or three plates of food. Sometimes it was 20 bucks a plate of food, you know. Um, Expensive. And I really had had this dream of seeing all those flashing lights and being on TV in the U.S. and and being in sort of my homeland in a big padded bed and doorways I didn't have to duck through. And as great as the Japanese fans were, I mean, they were amazing. And uh, I still hear from, from some of them on Facebook where they say that they thought that Mike Awesome and I were the best tag team out there since the Road Warriors. Um, that's a nice compliment because those guys were kind of our idols while we were out there. We were face painted up yeah. and tag team champions a couple times in a row. Um, was it good money? I mean, in Japan, it was pretty time? good, but you know, part of what made me, I guess, sell my soul in a sense to do the razor part was I finally got to work in the U S was, which was always my dream. Um, the money was about double mm -hmm. and Brett Hart had gotten me a tryout. I'd made friends with Brett here in Calgary after probably just before going to Germany, him and I chatted and he was going back. And then I came back and he said, yeah, you should go out to Germany to learn the style and that, and then you'll be more suited to working well in WWF. And so I thought, okay. And I kind of wanted to skip the whole Germany thing, but it was good experience. Mm -hmm. um, that was a hard ring too, though. 
Uh, and go ahead. I'd say a little stiff over there. Uh, an another ring that you had. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Uh, and then I also had the uh, displeasure of dealing with Justin Bradshaw or JBL. Um, you know, it's funny looking back. Uh, he, he was just a real loudmouth Texan. And I, I have been practicing spirituality for about 18 years now. And I like to, you know, try and practice non judgmentalism. But you just, you got to call a spade a spade or a stat a stat. And he was a loudmouth, obnoxious jerk. And uh, had, he was about my height, 6'6 six, six or so. And had been out there and made a name for himself the year before. But I was in there then. And I think he felt threatened by another guy with the same height, probably a better physique, more athletic. Um, and he was just loudmouthing me every night. And I'm not that kind of a guy. I'm not going to sit there and bicker back and forth or throw insults at people. But I think it was his own insecurity trying to protect his spot and, um, you know, take away your confidence in that. And there were a few times there where he pushed me verbally so hard. I just about got up out of my chair and punched him in the face as hard as I possibly could. I was so pissed off. Um, yeah, he was, he was no pleasure to be around in the locker room. And we were stuck in these tiny little locker rooms out in Germany. He just would not stop. He'd go on and on and on. And, um, it was ridiculous, you know, and, and again, I could shoot too. So if I really wanted to, all I had to do is shoot down for an ankle, crank back, snap his ankle and stand up and say, come on. I mean, he was a tough guy himself, but what are you going to do? He got a broken ankle. Yeah. And what was this? I mean, uh, you said JBL was there was, but this wasn't WWE connected, was it? No, no. But again, there. You know, Sean, if I were to go in and, and punch him in the face or break his ankle, which he had no idea I had the ability to do, or maybe he wouldn't have shot his mouth off so much, uh, my reputation would have gone right down the tank. Oh. And I probably would have been fired the next day from Germany and sent home. And my reputation throughout the whole business would have, you know, you don't want to hire this guy. He's going to go in and hurt somebody. So you never had a confrontation with him? It never came down to it where you had to say, all right, enough? No, but millimeters away, you know, <laughs> and there are a couple of times where I said, you better just shut your mouth. And he was kind of pulling the or what thing on me. And uh, I figured he thought he had um, a couple of the older veterans like uh, Fit Finley and that on his side. They'd always sit there and laugh, but then they'd be rolling their eyes after a while, like enough, shut up after a while too. And, um, yeah, uh, and he was the same way apparently in WWF, WWE to a lot of the guys. And uh, I know, I remember traveling out in Germany, he had his wife out there and she'd be like, quiet, John, be nice, John. And apparently uh, they split up. I imagine she just left him and couldn't stand him after a while. It, it just so obnoxious. Never met anybody like that in my entire life. Uh, but anyway, I did the right thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, you got you got through that uh, that stint in Germany, and you said you did gain some uh, good experience from it. So when you mm -hmm. come back, did uh, did the WWF come calling, or, or how did uh, you end up? Well, Brett had gotten tryouts for a lot of us. Phil Afon, another fantastic worker from All Japan Pro Wrestling, and Doug Furness, and they never really got the gimmick or the push they deserved either. Um, they brought them over from All Japan, where they were making pretty big money. Uh, it didn't push him very hard. They gave him the gimmick of Can-Am Express, which 
I think um, it might have been Rick Martell and somebody else who had that yeah. gimmick. Or, yeah. yeah, and maybe Barry Windham or Rotunda and somebody had another Can-Am Express gimmick. But, I mean, it just doesn't get over, right? It's boring. Yeah. Um, and they could have given them something else, and, and they probably would have gotten over better with it. But fantastic workers, great guys. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah, Glenn Jacobs and I, the the second Diesel, uh, Kane, worked them a few times, and they're you know easy to work with, great, really athletic, and it was just fun. Yeah, but Brett had so got in. what's that? So you impressed them when you did get your shot? Yeah, yeah. Well, Brett got me in as Rick Titan, and I actually um, this was before they had known anything about me doing a, a razor imitation. I'll get that to that in a second, but. Um, yeah, I went in there and um, worked with a guy named Frank Stiletto, and he was, you know, considered a jobber, and just went in there and did his job and got beat every night, and he was fine with that. And uh, I came into locker rooms. I said, "So, Frank, what do you want to do?" He goes, "Oh man, you're big Titan from Japan, and what do you want to do, man? I'm I'm just here to put you over." And I, I just thought to myself, like, that's if you want to go further in this business, you don't talk like that, you know, but. Yeah. People do what they do. So um, I kind of went, all right. So I thought, well, this guy's going to just let me do whatever I want to do. So I'm going to lay a little walloping to him, not in a mean, bad way. But, uh, yeah, I got him in there, and I laid a whole bunch of forearms and chops in, pressed them over my head, and and did a whole bunch of different – I did what's called an abdominal plex, and you may have seen that with Owen Hart in that tag team championship match we had where it was like an abdominal stretch, but then I'd take them right up in the air and land them on their or their belly, mm-hmm. which wasn't really done. Um, and then finished with a swinging powerbomb. So I'd swing, pick them up and then turn um, 45 degrees, drop to my knees and then pound them into the mat. And poor guy laid it in pretty hard and then pinned them and uh fans were kind of stunned but they didn't really know who i was it was in columbus ohio and then i was supposed to work i think with one of the smothers uh, boys and we had a really good match um planned out and then i knew he was going to be easy to work with and i'd seen him work before so i knew he could do all the hop overs and slide behinds and duck this go around roll me up you know all these great spots we had planned out and then um after you know 48 hours of being there 12 hours a day for the tv tapings you're pretty tired yeah and wow. and it was my chance to shine and then vader went too long so the and i don't know if they did that to sort of break your spirit because they don't want guys coming in there with a big head either you know um Anyway, Vader went too long. He said we weren't going to have a match, and I was pretty disappointed. Went home, and um, about a month before that, I was in ECW as Rick Titan. Mm-hmm. Sabu had brought me in, and um, partly to beat me, <laughs> and partly to give me a chance to get to the U.S. and uh, And that was good of him. We had a really Sabu and I always had awesome matches. I mean, I'd press him up overhead, and he'd shake his feet, and I'd slide him behind. So he'd do a sunset flip on me. Then I'd kick out. Um, he'd hit the ropes, do a spin kick. I'd do an instant power bomb out of that. We just did all these great combinations and one after another. 
And then um, I put them on a table outside, springboarded over the top rope and kind of a plancha. Uh, he moved off the table. I put my knees through the table. He rolled me back in, dropped a chair on my face. And then I think he did a backflip off the top rope onto me and, and beat me. And then I worked with another guy there in ECW and then uh, got brought out a second time to Philadelphia. And Polly Dangerously, this was when Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were on their way to WCW. And so Polly wants a six-man tag with us. Jeez, I don't even remember who I was tagged with, to be honest with you. But it was against the Dudley Brothers and Hack Myers, and I just worked Hack Myers the night before. And um, Shane Douglas was there. And I knew Shane Douglas had heat with Scott Hall and the click and all that. They apparently... You know, this is just hearsay from what I heard, but stabbed him in the back and kind of got him blackballed out of the WWF from, from what I understand anyway, or that could just be his side of the story. Who knows? Right. But, um, yeah, Paulie says, uh, okay. You know, in his hyperactive manner, here's what I want you to do on the six bad tag. And I kicked back and I actually had a toothpick in my mouth and I was just kind of screwing around. I said, what the F do you want me to do, man? And I was kind of laughing about it. And he's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can you do that out there? And I was like, oh, geez. I mean, I screwed myself here. Yeah, what have I done? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he goes, can you take the, uh, take the walkie-talkie, duck down. Shane's at the other side of the room. After you finish saying this, pop up and smile and show him the walkie-talkie. Uh-huh. And he says, um, Tell him you didn't think I'd go to, down to Atlanta before I came here to kick your ass, did you, Shane? So <laughs> I took the walkie-talkie and I did my Razor Ramon imitation. And I said, hey, Douglas, you didn't think I'd go down to Atlanta before I came here to kick your ass, did you, Chico? And I could see him. He pops up. His face is beat red. Like yeah. He's just fuming because I think he thought that Paulie had brought him in without yeah. his okay. And he was co-booking at the time. He was just like the veins were popping out in his neck. <laughs> and I look over across the, the locker room and I hold up the walkie talkie and I'm smiling. And he's like, Oh God. <laughs> Walks back across the locker room over to me and he goes, same thing as Paulie. Can you do that out there? And I'm like, Oh geez. All right. Um, and they were doing the imitations of, of uh, the Blue Meanie doing uh, Shawn Michaels, right? And uh, Stevie Richards doing um, Diesel. So I, and I'd actually, it was one of the only guys I'd just stubble grown in. And it was like everybody and their dog had a goatee at the time. And I usually had one in Japan, but I wanted to look a little different. My hair had grown dark. I just got back from Germany. And, um, and I looked a bit like Razor Ramon. So I, I pulled a strand of hair down and had a vest. A leather vest actually from Germany mm-hmm. and had toothpicks and, and uh, walked out there and they called me Slice and Dice Ramirez. That was, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that didn't stick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they played, <laughs> they played that song Low Rider when I came out. Uh-huh. It was pretty cool. Like it was a cool feeling because I always thought that gimmick was really, really cool. I thought the scar yeah. piece, yeah. So- I thought the Scarface thing was fun. Uh, I loved that movie with Al Pacino, and I knew what the character was about. I looked a lot like Scott Hall at the time. 
Um, Did are, you had you done that imitation a lot before, just messing around? Yeah, yeah. I just oh, okay. so you had it down. Yeah, you, even on the road in in Japan and stuff, I would just mess around and start talking like Razor Ramon and and goofing off and and I. But I did Hulk Hogan imitations, uh, Macho Man imitations, a whole bunch. So, you know, I was always kind of goofing off with that stuff. But, um, yeah, they had us come out, and I came out to Lowrider, and then I said, Dudley Brothers, I got no problem with you, man. But Hack Myers, I gonna kick you effing ass. (laughs) And the crowd just went through the roof, man. They went ballistic. They were cheering and clapping, and I started throwing those floppy punches. And then from there, uh, in my opinion, the, the match went to hell because the Dudley brothers wanted to just take over uh-huh. and stiff everybody and uh, kind of go off plan. And I don't even remember what the finish was. It was actually a terrible match just because of their attitude. But uh, I had you fun had planted, with that. You had planted a seed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So apparently, from what I heard, um, one of the um, – it might have been one ahead there, brothers, but one of the referees as an agent had been there that night because WWE was in town close by anyway, and he, he was going to scout some people from ECW. And so I, I guess he went and told Vince, you got to see this guy, man. He's got it down pat. And um, so fast forward, I got the tryout through Brett, and that was great of him. Um then I get a call. I'm at home. I'm kind of getting depressed. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to go back to Japan, which, again, the fans are great. The boys are great. Everyone out there was honest. Um, they didn't rib you. They didn't give you a hard time. Uh, everyone was very respectful to one another. You know, we were very brotherly out there in Japan. It was really good. And, it's a hell uh, of a commute, though. Yeah. Yeah, going back and forth, 12 to 14-hour flights every two weeks is hard. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so you get the call. Yeah. So Vince, um, I get home from a workout and I, again, I'm kind of down. Like I thought I made it at that tryout and then I don't hear for anything for two weeks. I'm like, I guess I didn't make it crap. And, uh, I get back after a workout, get home and I hear this on my answering service. Rick, it's Vince McBan. Please call me at my home number at your earliest convenience. And I thought, all right, this is great. You know, and actually months before this, I'd had um, pretty much highlighted blonde, mostly blonde hair. And again, about 285, pretty lean, quite muscular. And Brett said he took Vince my picture and said, this could be my next Hulk Hogan as well. I thought, well, awesome, right? And, uh, so I think, and he's wanting me to call him at his home number. Wow. So uh, I was through the roof. I was elated. And then I called him and he goes, Rick, I want you to be my new Razor Ramon. The people want Razor Ramon back. I own the trademark, the copyright to the costume, the name, et cetera, et cetera. And I was kind of like, ah, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you're just, you're just uh, sinking feeling in your stomach. Yeah, exactly. Uh-oh. Yeah. And I thought, well, I said to him, can we call me Razor something else? Or can we at least evolve the character? Because I just knew how it was going to go. Yeah. Yeah. But again, at that point, if you, and I'd seen a lot of guys in Calgary get tryouts and never, never get back there. I thought I better take this opportunity. Otherwise I may never get another opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so I said yes to it. And of course, the contract was pretty much double the money I was making in Japan. And uh, 
Yeah, that's how it all started. So, but you, you show up there, and, and are you thinking like, man, uh, how is this going to go over? Not just with the fans, but then also the boys. You've got to walk yeah. into that locker room, and these guys had been working with Nash and, and Hall. Yeah. Uh, so what was that experience like? I mean, just, just showing up. And, and maybe I don't know if the, the rest of the uh, the crew knew that that's what you're going to be doing, but uh, I, I don't imagine it took long. Well, you know, it wasn't as bad because Glenn was playing the second diesel after the Isaac Yankum bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so at least that, you know, took a little bit of the heat off me. If I was the only guy to come in as a replication then um, it would probably would have, it would have been a lot harder. I still got ribbed a bit, but just verbally, it was probably all in good fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was one of the uh, Blues Brothers or Bruise Brothers that said, and, you know, it was a setup joke on, on sh- for sure, but he said, anybody got a disposable razor, man? And you go, yeah. one of the other brothers says, yeah, right there. But you knew the heat was coming at, at some point here. I mean, yeah, yeah, but it, it really wasn't that bad, and and huh? so from some of the guys I expected it to be bad from, um, like say Triple H, uh, he was he was pretty good to me, you know, he's pretty respectful, he's all business. Um, I can't say I liked him, but uh, you know, he was good enough, and and then Sean was just, um, I, I thought it was. Because I knew Brett and him had some heat. They didn't get along. And I thought Sean would just classify me as one of the Canadian boys, too, and maybe kind of look down his nose at me or because he didn't like Brett, you know, treat me poorly. And um, he actually, uh, one day backstage, he's like, yeah, Rick, uh, I, th- I think he called me Rays. <laughs> he goes, Scott yeah. used to throw his punches like this. He'd measure up first, and then he'd, you know, swing way back and then he just kind of loose floppy right into the neck like this, you know? So yeah, throw your arm up first, measure up. And so I'm kind of doing what he's telling me to do. And I got the punch down better. And, uh, cause I was wrong by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I had to, I had to comment on that. That's good. Sean. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so he's helping you on uh, how to throw uh, Scott's punches. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool of him, and you know, he was just um, just helping out. And uh, maybe you saw something in me, or maybe you know, I I think sometimes, and to me, it means nothing these days. But back then, I think to be a legit tough guy and a strong guy, yeah. uh, guys had respect for in the locker room. You know, I mean, yeah. they they knew that, especially if you're quiet and respectful like I was, um, and but they knew you could go in there and break bones or knock heads off shoulders. You know, they had some respect for you. And, um, yeah, he was just always good to me. I, I was actually kind of surprised. I was actually stunned when he walked away after that. And I'm like, Hey, cool. That just happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that is surprising. Cause I would have thought that, you know, that there would be a lot of heat with you coming in, especially, a, you know, the click and then the, yeah. the personalities they had theirs and these guys departing and the whole thing. But when this thing would debut in September mm-hmm. uh, of 96 at, um, you know, w- with this bizarre Jim Ross heel turn, yeah. which was like, it just started 
very strangely anyway. But we, you know, we talk about heat with crowds, and but yeah. this was different. And when did you first realize, like, ah, I don't know if this is what I need or what this, you know, where what what's going to happen here? You well, as we were first went out. Yeah, way worse than I thought it would be. Because, <laughs> again, I sort of thought that, okay, the character is cool. I've got it down. Um, Vince actually taught me the walk. He says uh, they brought us in early, and Vince had come to their training ring there in Connecticut, and both Glenn and I were kind of working on the characters and the demeanor and the walk and all that. And Vince uh showed me you walk like you've got hinges on your knees and your legs just sort of flop forward as you're walking. <laughs> he's throwing his hands out and kind of doing the cocky head thing. And, and he showed me the way Scott did it and uh, he had it down, I guess, but you know, he could probably imitate anyone too. He yeah. Was yeah, yeah those are his characters. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he yeah. Do them all. Yeah. Oh. So, um, but you know, it's so funny. I, I listen to Jim Cornette and sometimes I'll listen to a podcast Boy, he takes credit for everything, whether he did it or not. It's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Again, you know, years of trying to practice non-judgmentalism, but uh, a very yogic practice. Um, looking back and listening to him bragging, I don't know if he's a multimillionaire and he made a ton of money in the business and it's gone to his head or what, but he seems to think he did everything for everybody. He's God's gift to wrestling, and and really, I just thought he was kind of a slimy backstage loudmouth. Um, obviously, he knew something about wrestling, or he wouldn't have been able to do Smoky Mountain Wrestling and be in the office in WWE. But uh, yeah, he takes way too much credit for for having done what he thinks he's done. And uh, it was Vince that taught me that. But he was, he, I heard him on a bunch of podcasts saying he taught me it. It was ridiculous. But, um, yeah, so this we get, what's that? This was all Vince. It was what all you knew this, how this was the idea came from. I mean, them saying, yeah. oh, this guy could do a really great razor. And, you know, he, in some ways, did you feel that it was a way for him also to take a shot at those guys? Who oh yeah. Left. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I, you know, his idea was I made you, I created you. I turned you from the diamond stud or star starship uh, coyote or whatever his name was years before that and into razor ramon and uh i can do it again watch this and and you're gonna fail little did he know that the nwo is going to be the biggest thing to hit wrestling in history of wrestling after that but yeah, yeah. And, and uh and i go back to that debut mm -hmm. where and, you know after jim does this whole thing about he's turning and what the WWE has done to him or WWF at the time. Yeah, that and was good. Then he brings you out and man, uh, I, at that point are you saying now, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah. <laughs> yeah kept, they relive that moment for me. And, <laughs> and like I said, I mentioned it, we know heat, heat is good for a, yeah. a heel, but there's also where it's just bad. Yeah. <laughs> bad this <laughs> this was definitely bad heat. Yeah. Walking out there and people are looking at me. They're disappointed. They're yelling. They're swearing, <laughs> saying, you suck. We want Scott Hall back. <laughs> You're a fake. And all the way to the ring, just everybody telling me off. And I was like, oh, man, this is 
not going well at all. You know, I thought at least some people would think it was cool to have the, but almost the whole audience was, they just really wanted Scott back. And I don't blame them, you know. Well, probably. and they pitched it. Really, you, you watch that scene and, and they say, you know, uh, Ross says, you know, Razor Ramon. And then out comes this guy who's a, didn't take too long to figure it out, but initially, and then all of a sudden, wah, 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 you know, and you're like, I mean, I just watching it again, I've just went, oh, God, I mean, uh, just feeling for you. Yeah, thanks. That's <laughs> one out there. And, you know, you, you, you sold it. You did what you needed to do. But yeah. I don't know anybody anywhere who could have made that different. They, say, they set that up, and it just... Uh, couldn't be saved. And, and uh, from that point, what happened uh, as you guys rolled on with this? Because then, of course, you would team up, as you meant, mentioned with Glenn, um, mm -hmm. fake diesel. But it was it did it ever change or was it always that feeling like, when are they going to stop it? When are they going to stop the misery here? Well, I didn't know what they were going to do. And it sort of, you know, again, like you said, that sinking your gut, a sense of impending doom. I was only there for a one-year contract, and I think I felt that in my gut the whole time. Uh, this is not going to last. It's not getting over, you know. And bittersweet, yeah, I made it to the WWF, and uh, even my own mother didn't think I'd ever make it there, you know, with my dreams, and uh, proved a lot of people wrong that thought I'd never make it there, but at the same time, it wasn't on my terms. Um, I thought if... And the part of the problem was a lot of it was based out of New York and they thought, I mean, the smart marks seemed to think they were cooler than the wrestlers at that point in time. So they were booing and hissing and loud mouthing and swearing and, you know, just, you, you couldn't get over with them. Didn't matter what you did. Yeah. Um, uh, you could have flown out of there like Superman and they still would have pissed all over you. Really? <laughs> Um, and what was what was Glenn's feeling on this when doing the fake diesel? Uh, was he uncomfortable with it too? Yeah, it was kind of funny because he had these really dark Ray Bans the office gave him and he couldn't see. <laughs> and so I was walking in front. He goes, "Rick, slow down! I got to put my hand on your shoulder. I can't see a effing thing." <laughs> <laughs> so we're walking along. And we just tried to make the best out of it. And he's walking behind me. And it's so loud. They can't hear you. The audience can't hear you. And he's behind me going, yeah, yeah, I know. We suck. I know. <laughs> Got it. Check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I just started smiling and laughing, you know. So. Yeah. Well, and obviously, I mean, he survived it. And, of course, nobody even really remembers in a sense of I mean, he went on to become Kane and now mayor. But uh, like you came in and you were in a situation, like you said, uh, I'm getting an opportunity here. If I say no to Vince McMahon, this may be something that sticks with him and I'll yep. never get another shot. Yep. But if I do it and it doesn't work, it could label me for the rest of my professional career and I, I may not be able to get anything. So you were really in a really tough situation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean... There, there's a part of me that wished it didn't happen. I could have gone in there as Rick Titan, and I think I would have gotten over really well as a heel and had a, a good baby face turn. I think that would have been the smartest thing to do with me at the time. Um, but Vince just wanted to use us to get revenge. And, I, you know, there's also the portion of, you know how political it is, Sean. Yeah. Um, Glenn was in tight with the Southern boys, and he had 
he worked for with Cornette, I believe, and with Dutch Mantel, and uh, he was in tight with all the Southern guys that had some pull in the office and some say. And right around that time, that uh, about seven of us Canadians, including Kurgan, the Giant, I think they brought Luke Rambo in. They brought uh, Phil Fon, Doug Furness in as a Canada Express. We were all one-year contracts, and we all there were seven of us Canadians, and we all got. Um, you know, our contracts ran up. We didn't get renewed. Mm. And and Brett had, at that time, I think that was around the same time that he uh, either had a lot of heat with Vince or he had left or um, it might have been around the time he, that whole Shawn Michaels schmoz, which I still to this day think was a, a work, a very good work. And yeah. based on a really silly premise, though, like completely exposing the business to the fans, I refused to do the job and I got screwed. You know, it's like, wow, that's, uh, that's not a way. Now, I thought it would really with the fans go, well, you're, you're a jerk, Brett. Like even the Canadian fans do the job, do what you're supposed to do. You that do what you're hired for, you know? Yeah. Um, as much as I like and respect Brett, it, it could have been a shoot, but it, it I, and it's funny because I was friends with Jim, Jim the Anvil Neidhart too at the time. And um, I asked him straight to his face and I'd known Jim for a while and I could pretty much tell when he was BSing. And, and I, I think I'd mostly seen that from him being out around the fans and the ring rats, they'd be talking to him. And when he was lying, he would look down and tug on his beard a few times. <laughs> yeah, tell. Yeah. And I asked him, was that a shoot or a work gym one day? And he, his eyes went down. He started tugging on his, nope, nope. Yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, well, you had to, you know, you had some pretty high profile matches in this. I mean, you were, you, you were in the, the Survivor Series and yeah. uh, Royal Rumble. Uh, but when did you know that uh, the end was near and, and how did it happen? I always called it, uh, just to rewind a little bit, I mean, it was cool. I got to wrestle Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, and Not, Rock. It was, you know. Yeah, Rocky Maivia, The Rock, yeah. Dwayne Johnson, huge movie star. Um, Kane, uh, him and they split us up in Memphis. So really when they sent us to, I think it was Mexico before Memphis, I'd, I'd said, nah, they sent us down to the Little Leagues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, by this time, I'd actually gotten a lot leaner too, so I looked a lot more like Scott Hall in the in the time too, and went down to Mexico, and um, that was an experience. It was kind of fun. It was uh, a little wonky. Jake Roberts was down there, and he was uh, up to his crazy business and <laughs> brilliant mind, but uh, had his issues, you know, <laughs> and um, it's right now. That's that's awesome. Yeah, he's doing really well, I think. So he's doing awesome. That's that's pretty cool. Finally, that back then, uh, not so much. It no, was, no, it was a mess. So this is going. You're, you're in Mexico, and I don't know how you were received there, but uh, were you hoping that they would say, "Okay, you know what? The, we're done with the razor. We're going to give you a break or something, and we're going to bring you back as something else." And and you know, others have survived. Yeah, worse things. So what's your thinking at this point? I was really hoping that would be the case. Um, again, though, with the politics, I think uh, Brett had the falling out. I, I could just see all the Canadians going down the drain. They weren't using anyone well anymore. Uh, Vince 
has a vengeful mind, I think. And um, because Brett probably pissed him off, he just said, well, I'll dump all your Canadian friends too at the same time, you know, screw you. Um, so I could kind of slowly see that happening. And I knew that Glenn was still in contact with some guys, you know, in the Southern territories that, that they were hooked up well in the office. And I had nobody but Brett to go through really. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, it's again, the case of who, you know, right. The politics of it. Well, and then also so much timing as well. Yeah. I mean, just what, what things going on. So how well, did the, yeah. final, the final chapter play out? I mean, what did they, Vince call you or how did it, how did it happen? Well, they'd sent us down to Memphis and that was fun. Cause I got to actually, and I, there's a video on YouTube of it where I dropped the razor Ramon stuff. We were going to light it on fire, but I guess the fire marshal would have shut it down in the building. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> I, and I'm sure you really wanted to do that. That was a shoot. I, I did. I was done. Yeah. <laughs> um, although the fans, they turned me baby face and they had Glenn, uh, go heel and it was a good split and the and the fans down there in memphis they're just they're just there to have fun and go along for the ride they, they loved it i turned baby face they went nuts for it they just ate it up and they loved it to death and then i went and, and turned um you know through the razor chains and vest in the garbage on tv and did an interview and said you know rick titan is who i really am and rick titan's back and i'm going to show you guys what it's really all about, kind of an interview like that, yeah. and wrestled in there as Rick Titan still had sort of a blue vest, blue trunks, and got over pretty good. They were popping every time I came out, and I thought, wow, maybe, um, maybe I and I was still getting paid under WWE contracts. The money was still good, and I thought maybe we can bring me in to the WWE either as a heel or as a babyface, and sort of show some of the stuff from Memphis on WWF TV or. Something like that, and and I think it really would have worked, um, but no, the, the politics of it. And then I got sat sat home for a bit. I think it was Cornette that called me and asked me if I wanted to go to Puerto Rico. I went down to Puerto Rico. I I really didn't like it out there. Um, we worked a lot. I didn't get a lot of time to hang out and relax on the beach. Really, <laughs> and um, it was just sort of a. It was almost a point where guys. You know, Carlos Colon was going to win every match, and uh, the other guys were there almost like at the end of their career, or guys that never really made it, never really would. It was. It seemed like a burial ground for wrestlers. Oh boy, yeah, yeah, it wasn't fun. So I mean, that's uh, that was pretty much it. And that was it. Did you ever hear from Scott? Ever uh, run into them? Ever hear? What their reaction, uh, Nash and and, uh, and Hall's reaction to what the WWF had done? Well, I think at this point they had gotten over so huge with the NWO, it really didn't matter to him at all. He just thought it was kind of cute and funny. Mm-hmm. I remember him saying in an interview something about uh, having a um, imitator or something like that it was pretty cool. It was like being Elvis or something like that. But you know, Scott's. It's, I think, still pretty egotistical, and and um, it it wasn't to be an imitator of him. It was trying craft it into my. I had an idea from um, an Antonio Banderas movie, and I can't, can't remember the name of it right now. But I thought turning it into more of a Mexican character, and getting rid of the little curl down my forehead and having long pants, and evolving the character. 
still with a Spanish accent, and I think it would have worked. Um, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, and then I think it was Portuguese Man of War who said to me, oh, yeah, Scott wants to know if you want to buy a bunch of his old Razor gear when I was still in WWF there. <laughs> I'm like, well, first of all, it doesn't fit. I can't, I can't get his trunks mm. past my legs. <laughs> <laughs> and no thanks, I don't want to buy second-hand gear. <laughs> and never had a, and ever had a conversation with him? No. Him? Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But, you know, there's um, – I, I think – even even after watching all the Diamond Dallas Page things, and I mean, I I haven't drank in six and a half years myself, uh-huh. and so I know what it is to clean up, and I know what it is to thank you, yeah. uh, to have a sense of humility and learn how to get rid of selfishness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big part of it, and and being so self centered that you feel that you have to drink or turn to drugs um, is a very self centered thing. You know, and it hurts other people in your life too. And um, I don't think Scott quite got the humility part of it when he sobered up. Yeah. So uh, looking back on it, um, mm-hmm. how do you view that that period? That uh, you know, a, a great opportunity that may you know may have turned out better, or, or uh, what do you what do you think when when you when you think back to that time? Well. I mean, it opened another door for me too. Um, so that I mean, that never would have happened, and I never would have got the push I got. So I went. I got a call when I was in Puerto Rico that uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling wanted me, uh-huh. and I had wrestled with Chono in Germany, um, not in the ring with him, but got to know him, and we, we grooved pretty good. It was nice. And then uh, Tenzan, Hiroshi Tenzan. Um, out in Germany, uh, and then, um, oh, geez, why is his name escaping me right now? Hmm. Japanese name. Uh, it'll come to me later. Um, great guy. But you were able to, you, you did get some opportunities beyond that. And then, yeah, so I became a pretty part serious of, injury, right? Is that what pretty much yeah, your career? Yeah, I became part of NWO Japan. And so that was. That was huge over there, right? The oh, NWO Japan was just gigantic oh yeah Scott Norton talks about it yeah I mean it was the fans are going through the roof the draw every night was brilliant uh a couple of my idols of course being Chono and Keiji Muto the great Muda uh I used to watch them when I I think Muda when I was about 17 18 years old doing the backflips and spraying the mist in people's eyes and uh, I mean he was one of my idols kind of and to get to tag up with those guys and then to learn their psychology and sit backstage and put matches together with them was really, really cool. So I, I don't think I would have gotten that opportunity if I hadn't done the WWF stint because it was only old WWF guys that were going to NWO, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then the injury and, and what happened? How'd that happen? Yeah, so I had a year and a half run out there, and it was pretty strong. And they put me over a lot, and uh, and I enjoyed it. And the and again wrestling with a couple of my idols, and I felt like a big star again. You know, I mean, probably the biggest stardom I had achieved in my career by that point, because New Japan was so big out there, and it was in all the magazines, it was in all the TVs every week across the whole country. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere; you'd almost get mobbed. 
Uh-huh. And yeah, that was the biggest start of my achieved in the business, and um, and all that was cool. And I'd actually gotten even bigger. I was probably about two ninety five at that point. Um, scary big and scary strong and tough because out <laughs> little little start, little rollback. I first got in the ring out there, and and Tiger Tori, the referee, says throw a punch to a, a guy named Black Cat or Kuro Neko, as they called him. And so I throw him this floppy razor punch. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Lay it in. So a little hard. He goes, harder, harder, harder. And I'm throwing these punches and even going back to my old Japanese style. But he's like, no, try a forearm. And I'm just kind of just touching him with these forearms. And he's like, no, harder, harder, harder. And poor black cat. I was just about taking his head off. Wham. You know, and then he'd be hitting me back a little bit. I'd be like, holy crap if this is how stiff it's going to be out here i think i'm going to hop on a flight back to canada right now (laughs) (laughs) and that was wwf was attitude and new japan was strong style at the time so we would open up um long story short i guess last match i had out there last big match was with uh, shinya hashimoto who's passed on as well he was a world heavyweight champion and he did these karate kicks. He was sort of an Elvis gimmick with big sideburns and these big flared out pants. And he was known for being a bit of a crowbar. Uh, and I just took it, but I was at, I knew I was at the end of my contract out there too. And I think it was about a year or even a full year and a half, Sean, that I was sitting on these buses, going on these tours and going, you know, I'm smarter than this. Is this all there is? And I was starting to feel really hollow and really empty and really dark inside and um, gotten far away from God and didn't know what my life was going to turn into. And I knew I couldn't do it much longer. I thought, well, I could, you know, I can act. I could try and turn to acting. But I had been acting on and off in Calgary for 20 years, and the agents could only get you small commercials or little bits here and there. I was in a few TV shows and a few movies and things like that, but never enough to support a good living, you know, like maybe a couple grand a month if you're lucky. Um, So I thought, well, geez, acting's probably not going to work out because that's just the way it's been for, you know, almost 20 years. And, um, or at that point, more like 10 years, but I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And I started really soul searching and, uh, I didn't even bruise anymore. I got the punches, the kicks, everything laid in boot laces across my chest. I look at my arms on my chest the next morning and think I'd be all marked up. I wasn't even marked up anymore. That's how tough the skin gets after a while yeah. too. Yeah. And it was, it was just weird, you know, like, and I was lacing up my boots all the way up to the top. And I thought, I wonder what it feels like with all these guys I know back in Calgary who are businessmen who go to work every morning and tie up their business shoes. Mm-hmm. And here I am lacing up these big boots every night and it's, it's perfectly natural for me. But, and that was like the first time in my career where I went, I wonder what it would be like to be a businessman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Being that cubicle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and to wear a suit and have short hair and not be stared at at 290 pounds everywhere I went, you know. Um, and in Calgary, I wasn't on TV anymore, of course. It was all in Japan. So here I am, like a freak of nature, almost 300 pounds, big long hair, lamb chop sideburns and a goatee. And 
and uh, all muscled up and, and wearing, uh, you know, gym clothes most of the places I went and, and neck wider than my head. And um, I just felt so out of place, almost 30 years old. And I, I didn't, my friends were, you just couldn't relate to them anymore. Even my family, I'd probably, my parents in Vancouver, my brother, I'd gotten fairly distant from them because I couldn't relate anymore to them. And um, I was very self-centered. Of course, we know this that business can make you very egotistical. So I'd go and visit them and I'd be all about myself and cocky and a bit arrogant and rude. And, you know, they didn't, uh, they weren't real happy with me and oh. taking lots of painkillers. So probably doped up half the time too, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you got to do to get up every morning too. Well, that's true, you know, uh, but uh, they're highly addictive as well. So probably taking more than I needed to, as is the case with most of the guys that ended up in the business for a lot of years and ended up taking them. And uh, a lot who passed away, you know, late 30s, uh, having a heart attack, that, that's just not natural, right? Um, but uh, I don't want to go there too much. But I can think of at least 20 different guys I could go down the list off the top of my head. Oh, yeah. You. yeah. Yeah. That I was friends or, or acquaintances with. So I'm very fortunate, very lucky. And also the match with Hashimoto, um, to roll back to that. Now we were stiffing the crap out of each other. You know, I mean, they had a, a system of lights and stereo and everything out there that I think rival the WWFs. It was that good. And TV cameras everywhere, big, huge hard cams, just, you know, 10,000 people in there. And I was in the main event for the World Heavyweight Championship. And I was kind of hoping I'd go over, but I kind of knew I was on my way out to the end of contract. And they didn't hang on to guys for too, too long. They push you and put you over for a while, and then you'd start in the downslide, and then you'd be on your way out, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, Hashimoto and I had a great match. I mean, wow, it was it was fantastic and our timing and our distancing and, and we knew each other from working with each other before too. So we kind of got into, into a groove and, um, big stakes world heavyweight championship in new Japan pro wrestling. I think that was the most vied for title at the time in, in the whole business, as far as I was concerned, but, um, just because you had to be a legit tough to get there too. Yeah. You know? And you really knew how to work, and your work rate had to be high, and your cardio had to be incredible, and you'd stiff the hell out of each other. <laughs> the way they so, did it. Yeah. And um, I remember a spot in the middle where he does these big wind-up karate kicks, and and I had to leave my chest open to just take them. And, and because it was on TV all over the country, and there were 10,000 fans there, it was for a World Heavyweight Championship, he just bootlaced me right in the sternum, damn near as hard as he could. And I had to open my arms and not block and just take it. And he would do it three times in a row. And Tiger Torrey, the referee, is, Titan, don't sell it. Don't sell it. The fans are all going, whoa, just going crazy. The referees basically call the match? He did a lot. Tiger Torrey was very experienced and, and very <laughs> smart. And he knew the, the psychology of the fans. So. He's got a director in there. Yeah. 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 It was great. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, getting back to how the, the injury happened. Yeah. So boom. (laughs) 
And I wrote a book called Wrestling with Consciousness, and I, I kind of go through in very great detail of how it felt like you stopped my heart. All the breath was out of me. My eyes couldn't see. My head couldn't think. I was frozen in time. <laughs> and then I'm, I finally I kind of came back to, and this is a kick in the chest, not in the head, right? Uh. And he winds up, and you're like, oh, no, not another one coming. I've got to just open up to it. Wham! And the chest again is almost as hard as you could. And my heart stopped again, and my eyes were almost crossed, and I almost had tears in my eyes. <laughs> at 290 pounds and he's like titan don't sell it so i'm just like <laughs> and the fans are going Whoa. they can't believe it because usually these kicks would knock a guy right over right oh. it winds up again for his third one Whoa, bang you hear the big smack off my chest and i went come on mother effer and they knew the f word out there so they're all like whoa <laughs> four big forearms and i laid him in just about took his head off for three big forearms bang 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 in the corner of the ring shoot him into the next corner and i'm at the point where i know i'm just about gone these guys have been stiffing me real hard for a long time and they're in with the office and they knew they were never going anywhere and i you know i didn't play my cards right I might not come back on the next tour or so, right? But I knew I was almost gone, so I didn't care. I hit him back as harder or as hard or harder. It kind of to prove a point too that I'm actually legit tougher than you are because of my ego at the time. <laughs> but uh, I popped him with his clothesline and almost as hard as I could at 290. I was benching four and a half plates aside and just about knocked his head right off, right out of the corner. <laughs> and he went, uh, down to the mats and I said get up you son of a bitch and it's just silence in the arena <laughs> and uh, I think I knocked him out and then finally he came through got back up and and uh, finished the match but he had uh, again being known for being stiff and, and not in the right places either I thought well if he's going to beat me that, his finishing move was a DDT and I, I never really saw that as a real great finishing move maybe when Jake the Snake did it because it was kind of his gimmick but yeah. uh, a lot of guys, especially in Japan, use it for a mid-match move. They drop a guy to DDT, and maybe he kind of like, you know, kayfabe knocked out for a bit and then come back to and make a comeback. So I made sure that I was going to just, and I'd done it over and over again, especially with Onita, where I just kind of block and roll. Well, I tried to just block and then actually stand there for a second on my head and then roll but he had held on too tight. I jumped too high and I blocked and just landed straight on the top of my head and have an old picture in the Japanese magazines of both my feet straight up in the air. Wow. Yeah. So, um, I didn't realize it at the time, but he broke my neck and, uh, my traps were so high and my neck was so wide at the time that, uh, I didn't really know it. And fortunately, thank God, they're only hairline fractures. So, uh, That's like you didn't paralyzed. Well, that's, that's what I say too. You know, uh, a lot of times, Sean, I look at these guys who've been passed away because they never woke up after taking so many painkillers or sleeping pills, which I'd done pretty much the same thing. I'm lucky to be here. I'm lucky to not have been paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of my life. Um, because of that, a lot of things really lucky, you know, and that's all I can really say is pure luck. And maybe God wanted me to do better things. And I always kind of felt that 
leading up as I was feeling that empty feeling inside, um, going back to that sitting on that NWO bus, not bruising, not feeling anything anymore, not even having a heart space for anything anymore. And I watched this cute little Japanese couple walking down the street and they're looking into each other's eyes and smiling and ha 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 ha. And they're just the cute little Japanese laugh and they're in love. And I thought, man, and I just probably a month before broken up the girl with a girl I was with, I wasn't in a good place. And, and I don't know if she was either, but, uh, uh, all alone and just watching this. And I thought, man, that's what life is about. You know, it's about love and it's about happiness and lightness and getting along with people and not being this tough monster that I've become. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I was kind of relieved in a sense. And, uh, after the match, all the reporters came back and they're taking pictures and asking me questions. I had a concussion for the first time in my life. I didn't really know what happened. And I was right out of it and I could barely answer their questions, but, um, I kind of knew I was done anyway. Uh-huh. And, it, you know, thinking back to that too, I was spraying in pain from my ankles to my knees, hips back right up to uh-huh. neck aches and headaches all day, every day. My eyeballs ached, you know, I was in so much pain that, uh, and, and taking lots of heavy painkillers. Um, I just, uh, didn't have the heart to do it anymore. I just kind of went, ah, part of my life's over. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what to do. I didn't know anything else at 29, almost 30 years of age. But, you know, even shortly after that, looking back, I thought, I'm glad this didn't happen at 40. Yeah. Because then what, how do you restart your life? Yeah. So yeah. you survived. Um, yeah. I want to thank you for taking your, the time to Talk to us. How could people, if they want to learn more about what you're up to, how, how could they get in touch? Do you have an email or a website or anything like that? Yeah. Um, email is probably the best way. Uh, Rick at RickTitan.com. And, and if you go to my website, RickTitan.com, um, I'm always happy to coach people. I love to see somebody that's going through a rough situation where they feel like they've got nowhere to turn to be able to, you know, both get motivated again. Uh, I've got a a talk I do called crush your stress and teach people how to, you know, business people, how to not, because I've had, I've been a real estate agent before and then the market crashed, but I was at the health club. We, we had high pressure quotas and been there and didn't really know how to take the stress all that well. And then over years of doing the meditations and learning these philosophies and learning how to control my own, like my body, uh, how to calm it down, how to calm my mind down. I would find a space of emptiness and I teach other people how to do that. And I take them through these meditations and philosophies when I do my, my one hour talks, I actually have a six hour seminar that I do. It's called the transformation technique. And I'm friends with uh, Dr. John D. Martini from the movie, the secret Laura Langmeyer from the movie, the secret. So I learned a lot about public speaking through them as well. Sort of like being brought along by some of the top wrestlers, very similar. And, um, so I do love the public speaking and, you know, I, I, I guess the ego never fully leaves. I like being in front of an audience and having, yeah. up and having the performers little- never left. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, my website, rictitan.com or on Facebook on my business page is probably the best way to get a hold of me. And, um, I do, I, I enjoy and get great fulfillment from coaching people one-on-one. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Rick, thank you so much, man. I uh, hope I uh, meet you in person someday. Yeah, I'd love to meet you too, Sean. I'm, I'm, I love what you did, and I remember watching you, and always thought that was really cool. And thanks for reaching out.